Now, I find that there are Zacks all over the place these days. It's not that unusual of a name, but when I was growing up, there weren't many Zacks. In fact, there were only a couple of prominent Zacks. Zac Efron wasn't even a thought yet. When I was growing up, he had two main Zacks, and people would bring them up when they met me. They'd say, oh, are you a Legomaniac? Is that your deal? And I was kind of a Legomaniac, but I didn't like that they went there right away, so I'd always say no. But then there was also Zac Morris. And that didn't bother me one bit because Zach Morris was so cool. And if you're not aware of who Zach Morris is or was, he was kind of like my generation's Fonzie. If Fonzie was a narcissistic, blonde, surfer, Gentile. But the thing about Zach Morris is that he was so very cool. I just, I loved how cool he was. He always got the girl. He was always one step ahead of his nemesis, Principal Belding. He could literally stop time just by saying time out. Wouldn't that be cool? There was, there was so much going on with this guy. He, he actually had one of those early 90s, late 80s cordless phones that everyone had in their house that somehow functioned as a cellular phone. I don't know how he pulled that off, but most importantly, Zach Morris was always up to something. He always had some kind of scheme, some kind of thing that he was working on, and I loved that. He always, he always had a lot of moving parts, and he was, he was like the Danny Ocean of Bayside High, right? He had some, some big heist going in every episode of the television show. And I remember one time, he was hiring an underclassman, some, some nerdy underclassman to be a cog in one of his designs. And he pulled out a $20 bill, and he said, I'll pay you 20 bucks, tore it in half, handed him half of it and said, you get the other half when the job's done. Come on. And I remember thinking, oh, that is so baller. And, and, and it, it's, it's so perfect because it shows that Zach Morris is willing to part with the 20. It's no good to him now. But also it says, you don't get it, any of it, really. It's no good to you either until you finish the job, until you've done what you said you will do. Then you'll get the benefit of this payment. And you know, when I read this text, verses 11 through 14 particularly, which is what we're looking at today, I think of Zach Morris a little bit, because there's something about the work of the Holy Spirit that's a little like that, but there's a lot more about the work of the Holy Spirit that's very different. So let's look at that for the foreseeable future. Now, when we start this text, it begins with the words, "...in him." "...in him we have obtained an inheritance." Which should remind you of the fact that last week's text began with the words, in him. And that throughout this sentence, and yes, this, this whole passage, verses 3 through 14, are one sentence, the longest sentence in the whole New Testament. Throughout this sentence, ten times, he has used the little phrase, in him, or in Christ, or in the beloved. Ten times. If we have anything worth having or anything that will last, Paul wants us to remember that it will be in him, in Christ. And last week, he was applying this to the entire cosmos for all of time. And this week, he's applying it to just you and me in our own little spheres. And yet in both cases, anything worth having and anything that will last will be in him. In Christ. So in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
There he goes again with this predestined and with this sovereign will of God stuff. It makes a lot of people in the American church squeamish a little bit, but Paul doesn't see any way around it. If we're going to talk about salvation, we'll talk about God's electing will, God's sovereign will, the fact that God sits in the heavens and is omnipotent. And here in this passage, this one sentence, verses 3 to 14, there are actually three different words for this basic idea that are used. And there's going to be a lot of this three-in-one stuff here. In fact, so much so that we can't even get into all of it. Uh, And that, I think, is by design, by divine design. But there are these three words that are used for this idea of God's will. There's the basic word, dilemma, which just means his will, what he desires. Then there's the word eudakia, which means his good pleasure, that which gives him pleasure, and it's good. And then there's the word uh, prothesis, which means uh, his purpose, his design, the purpose that he has for us. And that purpose is to save us. It's clear that the apostle does not want us to forget that it is not by chance and it is not by choice that we belong to God, at least not by our choice, but by God's sovereign choosing. Not to say that we're not active participants in all of this. Even here in this passage in verse 12, we read, we hoped in Christ. We put our hope in Christ. And that's how we were saved. And then in verse 13, you heard the gospel and believed in Christ. Yes, we are participants. But when we hear about hearing the gospel and believing, recognize it's God who gives the ears that will hear and the heart that will receive. In fact, Jesus in his teaching often said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That doesn't just mean those who have physical ears that work, but those whose ears and hearts and minds have been prepared by the Holy Spirit. And as we've looked at this big, long introductory sentence, and we're finishing it here today, we've seen that this is a three-act kind of situation. That shouldn't surprise us. The whole scripture is a big meta-narrative of three acts, creation, fall, and redemption. But here, even as we zoom in on redemption, we see three aspects. First, we saw the sovereign election that the Father carried out from before the foundation of the earth. That's in verses 4, 5, and 6. So the Father's work. Secondly, we see our redemption being secured by the work of the Son in verses 7 through 10, when he bled and died on the cross and rose again for our justification. And here in this passage, we see the work of the Holy Spirit applying that redemption to us and sealing us with his Spirit unto the day of redemption. Indeed, there are more threes even than that. I heard you like threes, so I put some threes in your threes. So you can three while you three. Here we see that there are three different ways that the Holy Spirit is described. As we zoom in from this threefold act on the third act, and in that act we see the Spirit described as a promise. He is called a seal, and he is called a guarantee. And all three of those are aspects of the Spirit's ministry that I think we need to take a look at today, because oftentimes we in the church tend to gloss over the work of the Spirit. And so when the Scriptures highlight it, I think it makes perfect sense for us to stop and look closely. He is a promise, he is a seal, and he is a guarantee. And, and notice he's writing to the Ephesians. And don't forget our study of Acts recently, that in Acts 19, it was in Ephesus, where there were 12 men who had been baptized only with John the Baptist's baptism. 
And in, in Acts 19, 2, Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So he baptized them with the baptism of Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, laid hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. It was like another Pentecost where Gentiles were receiving the Spirit, and they immediately began speaking in tongues and prophesying. It was completely unmistakable. And yet that's not the standard pattern, not even in Ephesus, where those men were. We're told here, you received the Spirit as a seal when you believed. You heard the gospel and you believed. And that is the pattern that the scriptures give us for today. That is how it is. It isn't with these floods of, of miracles that we see on the day of Pentecost or here in this singular moment in Ephesus, but rather we believe and we receive. And so we don't have uh, perhaps the, the measurable and unmistakable tidal wave of miracles that they had at Pentecost or in Ephesus on that day, but we do have the unbreakable conviction and unshakable joy that comes with having the Spirit, even in the midst of trouble. We do have this deep awareness of the fact that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We do have the gifts of the Spirit that are given to each believer and that we can use for the glory of God and for the building up of the church. We do have His leading and His comforting and His convicting us of sin. And we do have the Spirit's illuminating for us the words of Scripture so that we can understand them. But maybe most important, we have this promise. And it's not an empty promise. It is the signed, sealed, delivered promise that we can place our hope in. And I think the church makes a grave error when we tend to kind of gloss over or skate by the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, you walk into a church 20 times and hear a lot about the Father and a lot about the Son, but we, we're not aware of the Spirit and His workings. In fact, there's a, there was even a book written a few years ago uh, by Francis Chan called Forgotten God. And it was about how we've kind of forgotten the third person of the Trinity and it would be to the great advantage of the church and a great blessing to the church if we rediscover him. But don't take his word for it. Look what Jesus said. In John 16, all of his disciples are saying, Lord, don't go away. We don't want you to go away. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Clearly, Jesus was thinking in terms of this Helper, this Spirit, coming to you is vital to the church and the mission of the church. And it should be that the Spirit's work also gives us hope and comfort, especially in times when we are struggling. I, I read about a, a Norwegian explorer recently named Roald Amundsen. And as somebody, I, I was reading about him going, I, I should have heard of this guy. I mean, I've heard of major explorers. I know who first climbed you know, to the top of Mount Everest and stuff. This guy, Amundsen, actually discovered the magnetic meridian of the North Pole and discovered the South Pole. I'm like, that, that should be a household name, and yet I hadn't heard of him. And, and back when he was doing all of his discovering, of course, it meant he was going to be away from his family for a very long time at a stretch. When you're going to discover the North Pole and then the South Pole, you can't really get much further away from them. And on one of his trips, he brought with him a homing pigeon. 
And when he got to the top of the world, he released the pigeon. And it, you know, at first it was like, what is this, a joke? Because it couldn't figure it out because it's literally at magnetic north. And then it found its heading and it started to fly away and disappeared over the horizon. And his wife writes about how one day she was out hanging laundry on the clothesline and looked up and saw this pigeon. Pigeons, by the way, are called rock doves. They're really doves. That works for this illustration. Uh, flying in circles above her house and suddenly began to weep with joy and began to announce, he's alive. My husband is still alive. I know because I've seen this dove in the sky. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit who appeared as a dove at the baptism of Christ should give us joy and comfort and remind us that even when times look dark, our Lord Jesus is alive. That is a promise. Secondly, the Spirit is called a seal. And we've just been talking about the North and South Pole, but we don't mean that kind of seal. Naturally, we mean the kind of seal that one would use in a signet ring to make in wax. That's what would be in Paul's mind. And a seal it was a sign of authority, a sign of ownership, a sign of identity, and these things still continue to some degree today. If you have a passport, on the front of it is the seal of the United States. It shows that this is a legitimate document. Uh, whenever I do a wedding, there's always, if, it, if it's uh, Ingham County Courthouse wedding, and uh, they, they come with three copies of the marriage license, and I have everybody sign, and I sign and fill out all three copies. I send two of them back to the courthouse, but the one that I give to the couple is the one that has the seal imprinted and embossed into it. So that if anyone ever says, wait a minute, I'm challenging whether or not you're really married, they can take this out and say, yeah, it's got all the signatures of the witnesses and the bride and the groom and the officiant, but most importantly, it's got the seal of the county. It shows that it's an official document. And in many ways, this is the best uh, connection, I think, to the world that, that Lisa was reading about uh, in Esther, in which the king took his signet ring and put his seal on something, and that was unmistakable. It was indelible. It was irreversible. And that's what it means when the, the Holy Spirit is for us a seal. A seal also denotes ownership. It says this belongs to someone else. I'm really into logging history, and they used to brand the ends of logs here in Michigan with the company, the logging company that had felled them and, and was floating them down the river. That way you could just take one look and go, oh, those belong to H.M. Loudon Company or whoever it was. This belongs to someone else. Uh, yesterday we were out antiquing in Mason. That sounds like I'm Really fancy, but I'm not. We were, walk, we were eating ice cream, and then we walked into an antique shop. And uh, we were walking around in there, and I saw this thing, and I thought, ooh, this is kind of cool. And I'm in my mind going, how do I convince Aaron that we need this? We probably don't need it, but maybe. And then I noticed a little sign that said, sold. Going to my new home on Monday. And I thought, oh, all right. That doesn't belong to the store. It can't belong to me. It belongs to someone else. That's the kind of seal that we are talking about here as well. That, that this thing is now possessed, right? We, we were talking in our men's group about possession because we're reading through Mark and there's a lot of expelling of demons and all this kind of stuff. And the other day we were talking about, it was maybe three weeks ago, we were talking about how we don't see much of this or talk about much of this in the American church today, possession and what does it mean and what does it entail. And, and Steve said something that if it sounds weird, just blame Steve, but I thought it was kind of insightful. He said, you know, when we use that word possessed, we think of it in terms of like a demon controlling somebody like a puppet, but what the word really means is ownership of. And then we're reading about unless someone can come in and bind the strong man, he can't pillage the house. 
We're talking about how we are possessed, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit because God's ownership is sealed upon us with the Spirit. We are His possession. That's nothing new. God often calls Israel His possession in the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. That sounds an awful lot like Zach Morris ripping the $20 bill in half. Here's the first half. You can't spend it, but if you keep the covenant and do everything that I said, then you get the rest and you can be my possession and have all the benefits of. Well, those of us living under the new covenant who follow Christ, who are in Christ, well, we get to say Christ already kept the covenant and fulfilled all of it on our behalf. And we have the inheritance We are sealed. We are His possession. He is our inheritance. And that is kind of the wheel that we see turning in this four-verse passage here. Or as the song says, we are His portion and He is our prize. A seal also secures things. And that is an important aspect. Remember what they did when, when the authorities and the high priests were worried that someone would come and steal Jesus' body. They said, put a guard there, but also put a Roman seal. And they put a Roman seal there. And of course, that seal was broken by the angel who came down and opened the tomb. But if you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, that seal can't be broken. When God seals someone or something, no one can break it. No one can get beyond it. In fact, in the book of Revelation, remember, there's a, a scroll that's sealed. And it's, it's in the Apostle John's hand. And he says, I can't open it. I can't break the seals. I'm not worthy. A holy seal, a divine seal, is unbreakable. And this should give us comfort. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And this kind of comfort, this kind of security is so important when trials come. You know, the Gospel of Jesus Christ says that we are saved by grace through faith. In fact, the very next chapter in a few verses here, we're going to read that. You are saved by grace through faith. Faith, and that is true. Our faith is the instrumental means that God uses to save us, but it's not the foundation of our salvation. I don't know about your faith, but mine tends to be a little brittle, a little fickle, especially in times when I'm being tried and struggling, when I'm doubting, and when I I most need sure footing spiritually under my feet is when my faith starts getting wobbly and I feel like I might flip off. It's not a great foundation. Don't look to your own faith as the foundation of your salvation. Look instead to God's grace, to the finished work of Christ on the cross, and to the seal of the Holy Spirit upon you. And when the world seems like it's all chaotic and nothing has any meaning or any design to it, remember, God's purpose will not be thwarted. That's what we see here throughout this opening uh, doxology. And God's purpose that can't be thwarted is to save you. And sometimes when you look at it in all of the detail and minutia of the plan, it looks like a mess, but it's not. Uh, Sam Police, what she does for a living, if you didn't know, is she like helps open people up and mess with all their stuff and fix them and everything. Surgeries. And if they had at Sparrow Hospital like a take your pastor to work day, And Sam said, hey, do you want to come? I'd say, no, hard pass, because I'll pass out. But if somehow I happen to wander into the surgery in process, I guarantee I would look at this and think, what a mess. 
This person's chest is wide open. People are holding on to organs. Those are supposed to be inside. Somebody's got a knife. What are you doing to this guy? But if I understood it the way they understand it, I could see the plan that this is going well and that the end result will be that this person will have life. And when we think about God's plan, and he is the great physician, he has been working on this plan forever from before the foundation of the earth, working it in human history for millennia. And when we look at one little moment and go, oh, that looks like a mess. Remember, you don't have God's perspective. But Paul seems to be able to pull himself back to that point where he can get far enough away and and far enough into the heavenlies to say, God, I can at least see that there is somewhere we're going together. We have that security. So he has a promise. He has a seal. And thirdly, I almost said finally, but I'm only half done with the sermon. I want to manage expectations. Here's our pledge. A pledge or a guarantee. And this is an interesting word in the original uh, Greek because it's a Hebrew word that snuck its way into Greek. As the Phoenician sailors would come and the merchants would trade with the Greeks, they'd say, here is this pledge. This is a deposit, a down payment. In fact, the word continues today in the Greek language to be used. Now it means an engagement ring. And that might be a helpful picture, except that an engagement ring is just a symbol. It's disconnected from what you're promising. Right? It says, okay, here's some metal and precious stone, and it says that I will marry you and be faithful to you for my whole life. It's kind of arbitrary. Whereas a true down payment or deposit is part of what's being promised. Right? In fact, the King James says an earnest rather than a pledge. An earnest. That reminds me of when we were buying our house we had to pay earnest money, right? You've, you've already signed, so that's your seal. You've already promised you're going to buy the house, so that's the promise. And yet, there still needs to be this pledge, this earnest money. Here's some money to show I'm serious. Now, God didn't need to show us he was serious, and yet the Spirit is for us all three of these things. And this is where the Zach Morris analogy breaks down. Because, well, you cannot enjoy or spend any of that half of a $20 bill You can enjoy the Holy Spirit now. This down payment, this pledge of what is to come in our heavenly inheritance. And that's why it's so important that we don't ignore the Spirit's role and His working in our hearts and our lives. And yet, while it is possible and actually very easy to either underemphasize or even completely de-emphasize the role of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, it is also possible to wrongly emphasize him. And so I want to just walk you through what I think are the top, oh, let's say three ways in which we can wrongly emphasize the Spirit and misunderstand the role of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. And the first one is to become preoccupied with the Spirit whom Jesus called the Helper to the point of the Spirit overshadowing the Father and the Son. We read in John 16, 14, the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is the role that he has been sent to fulfill, and that is the role that he does fulfill. In some churches, in some, in some traditions, there tends to be such a lifting up of the Holy Spirit that it almost becomes, uh, Spirit is God, and the Father and the Son are subservient. And we lose track of the Trinity, the way the Trinity is presented in Scripture overshadowing Christ 
is not what the Spirit has come to do. Glorifying and illuminating Christ is what the Spirit has come to do. And on the one hand, yes, the Holy Spirit is God, and yes, is to be worshipped. In fact, we together in the Nicene Creed affirm these words. We believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, who together with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. Yes, the Spirit is rightly glorified and worshipped. The third person of the Trinity, God, is worshipped. But the Spirit tells us, because the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit is there to testify to the Son, to reveal the Son, to bring glory to the Son in our midst. So we worship a, a triune God, and there is order in that Trinity. And the Scriptures present that to us. That means the Spirit presents that to us and illuminates that for us, and we should understand and embrace it. Any emphasis on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that detracts or distracts from the Spirit rather than shining a spotlight or or, or distracts from the Son rather than shining a spotlight on the Son, on Jesus Christ, is a, a kind of a slap in the face of what the Spirit came to do, which is to shine a light on the Son, to glorify Him, to reveal Him, and to point us all to Him. This does not make the Holy Spirit some kind of second tier God. Any more than Jesus submitting his will to the will of the Father makes him like a junior deity. Within the Trinity, there is unity and diversity and perfect harmony. And it is a beautiful thing. It is mysterious, but it's certainly not contradictory. So the first way that we can wrongly emphasize the Spirit is to to be preoccupied with the Spirit to the point of overshadowing Christ rather than illuminating Christ. Secondly, is to divorce the Spirit from the Word of God. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, nothing is more dangerous than to put a wedge between the Word and the Spirit to emphasize either one at the expense of the other. It is the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit upon the Word, and the Spirit in us as we read the Word. And this is exactly what Jesus promised. Again, in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. As Baptists, we've always embraced this. We call it the doctrine of illumination. That as you read the Scriptures, you can understand them because the Holy Spirit helps open your eyes and impress these things, these truths on your heart. In our Baptist uh, confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, we read these words, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of Scripture is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. The Spirit is bearing witness in your heart, by the Word, and with the Word. And then it goes on to say, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. Don't separate the Word from the Spirit. Don't drive a wedge. It is the Word and the Spirit. Too often people think that the Holy Spirit is their loophole, their side end run to say, I can have some kind of self-made religion And when someone says, well, where did that come from? Oh, the Holy Spirit just gave it to me. It was a revelation. The Spirit works to illuminate the Word and will never be in in contradiction to the Word. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us basically the same thing. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Spirit is required to understand these spiritual truths. And the third way in which we can wrongly emphasize the Spirit is indeed the worst, 
and maybe the one that most flirts with that blaspheming of the Spirit that Jesus says cannot be forgiven in this life or the world to come, and that is to use the Spirit as a tool for our own whims or our own glory. And this is a very common thing among people who they don't want to let go of their sinful pride or their sinful past or to repent, but they do want some sense of the holy in their lives. And so the Holy Spirit becomes some nebulous source of greatness and human potential that they can tap into at any time. To the point of some people I've heard, even in churches, referring to the Spirit as it instead of he. The Scriptures never call the Spirit it. The Spirit is, is personal. And we say he not because the Holy Spirit is, is masculine, but because that's the personal pronoun that is being used here. The, the Spirit is not it. How dare we take the Spirit and try and, and just completely divorce the Spirit from His work of illuminating the text to us, of glorifying the Son for us, of convicting us of sin, of guiding and leading us, and instead turn the Spirit into the, the force from Star Wars. Some sort of faceless superpower that makes us awesome but never makes us uncomfortable. Some life force that we can leverage to our own ends. We are not okay to take the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and begin spraying them around like a chimp with a machine gun. Okay, the Spirit has been given to us for a purpose in keeping with God's plan of salvation. And that plan is summed up here to the praise of His glory. If you say this is the Holy Spirit at work, the way to test that is to say, is this result in the praise of His glory? If so, we may be on the right track. If not, be very, very careful. And notice that this crazy long sentence, the longest in the New Testament, begins and ends with the same thing. With praise to God for all He's done. Praise to God who has blessed us with every blessing in heavenly places. And, and, and there's all this emphasis on praising God. And then 200 plus words later, we find ourselves back at praising God's glory once again. And what is the canvas upon which the Spirit is painting to glorify God? It is you and me that we would be to the praise of His glory. Last week, he spoke in terms of this grand, eternal, cosmic plan being to the, the praise of God's glory as the infinite mind of God before there is space or time is creating reality by declaring reality. This week, in these four verses, he takes it right down to each one of us individually in our little sphere being to the praise of God's glory. And you know, we see that God is at work even amidst our little squabbles and troubles and, and, and complaints. Because the, the overarching theme of the book of Ephesians starts to bleed in here. In fact, if you go back up, going back just for a second, it's okay. You go back up and, and look at this verse 12 and verse 13, you see this strange we and you distinction. That, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory. What's the difference, we and you? Is it, is it Paul saying, me and my companions believe first? No, this is, this is beginning to hint at this Jew-Gentile division in the church. And how the book of, Hebrew, or book of Ephesians rather is primarily about how God takes these two people and makes one 
out of them one body and how that brings him glory. When people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gather together to worship him to the praise of his glory. When people who would normally be divided by all sorts of things are not because the thing that brings them together is so much greater. When they're crossing over boundaries of racial and gender and national and cultural separation to come together around the praise of the glory of God. And the one thing that unites us all, as we saw back in verse 10, is the one thing that brings us any hope at all. I, I posted on Facebook a couple days a tongue-in-cheek thing that I'd found my mission in life and that it was to decide whether the better torta, that's a Mexican sandwich, the best thing in the world, whether the best one in Lansing was at Don Pancho, which is this cool little bodega up the street, or at Pablo's in Old Town, and that I was going to devote my life to this, and I was going to carry it out by ordering hundreds of them over the next 30 years and then compiling my notes. And people put the little ha-ha emoji, and some people said, wow, you know, prayers for you as you undertake this great mission, and it was just silly and lighthearted. And it's funny, because that would be an absurdly small and trivial life's goal for a man's whole life. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, my reach and your reach isn't much more significant than that. Unless we are actually part of the grand scheme of things, that God is carrying out in his infinite will. And verse 13 promises us that we can be part of that grand scheme of things. In fact, our mission in life is a divine mission. With tongue completely out of cheek, we can all say, I am on a mission from God to bring praise to his glory. To glorify him. In fact, that's the chief end of man, according to the catechism. The very first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify him and enjoy him forever. This was the, the chief end that he created for us at creation. He said, this is what you will do. This is how you will find fulfillment. This is how you'll find any satisfaction at all. And then, of course, we rebelled and we fell away. And while we were far off and while we were enemies of grace and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and redeemed us and adopted us again as his sons and daughters so that now we can once again pour ourselves into the one thing that will give us satisfaction, glorifying God. Have you ever wondered why the richest, most successful, most famous, beautiful, sophisticated people all seem so very unhappy, just like everyone else? Why do so many of them die alone in a bathtub? It's because they've gone as far as they can and acquired as much as they can, and yet it was in the wrong direction. If they are uh, just trusting in these things and not in Christ. Like, like an inmate who's trying to tunnel out of his cell, but goes the wrong way, and then surfaces deeper inside the prison. Only when we put our faith in Jesus and trust this eternal plan from before the foundation of the earth, secured by Christ on the cross and sealed in us by the Holy Spirit, can we have anything resembling true peace? Again, this tells us that God's salvation, the source of it is His will, the end of it is His glory, and that all of it is to be to His glory. And if there's anything that sums up the Christian life, it is submitting your will to His will, submitting your glory to His glory. And that is where we find meaning. And that is why to glorify God is to enjoy Him forever. 
When you talk to an unbeliever, it's crazy how these are the things they try to skirt around. When you talk about spiritual matters or things of cosmic importance. I had a long conversation with an unbeliever this week in which he kept going back to, well, I think as long as I'm happy with what I'm doing or as long as I am living in, in keeping with my own code that I have developed, I will have some sort of glory to bring before God and then he will let me into heaven. Man-centered worldviews are so impressed with our own will and working toward our own glory in saying I can live a good enough life that I don't need Christ. And yet, for us to find Him means letting all of that go. My will, it's not going to get me anywhere. It's only going to get me deeper in sin. My glory, if I look at it through a real, uh, honest lens, I'm going to see that it is nothing but filthy rags in His sight. But if I submit these things to Him, well, I will find not only that I can glorify Him, but that I can enjoy Him forever. Thus ends the longest sentence in the New Testament. But I want you to remember this, that if you have been elect from all eternity, if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which means you belong to him, which means you have a promise, you have a guarantee, you have this earnest which has been paid, which you can experience and enjoy even now. And that tells you that there is no way that anyone can snatch you out of his hand. Michael Horton used to tell a story about when his grandmother would be canning things and he would get what she was doing right up to the point where she started to put the wax on. And he would always say, what are you doing? That's going to make it gross. That, no one wants that wax. And she would explain to him, I've got to seal it this way, otherwise it'll begin to rot. And one day it clicked to him. This is exactly what God does. If he's called us, if he has redeemed us, he will seal us and preserve us and keep us and keep us safe until the day when we receive our full inheritance in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of the helper, the comforter, who is even now here with us. And Lord, we pray that we would neither neglect nor, nor use to our own ends this Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, God the Spirit, that, Lord, instead we would look to the words of Scripture and want them to be illuminated by the Spirit's leading, that we would look to the Spirit to convict us of sin, even when we'd seared our consciences and, and tried to darken the illuminating work of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would, you would scratch away the scabs and scars and again convict us, Lord, anew. Shine light into the darkest places of our hearts so that we want to be forgiven, to acknowledge our sin and be washed clean. And Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit's leading would be that each of us, in every day of our lives, every hour of every day, would live them to the praise of your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.